0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's show includes an in-depth discussion about Cuba and US-Cuban relations, then an update on the election, and finally meet a new scholar who works on national security and civil liberties. If you have any questions for these or other guests on this show, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. My guest today is Richard Feinberg, a non-resident senior fellow in our Latin America Initiative, and a professor of international political economy in the School of Global Public Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. He served as Special Assistant to President Clinton for National Security Affairs and was Senior Director of the National Security Council's Office of Inter American Affairs. His new book, Open for Business Building the New Cuban Economy, will be published in June by the Brookings Institution Press. Richard, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Fred. Great to be with you.
0: Let's start with President Obama's historic visit to Cuba in March. You scored the president's visit there a triple. Why not a home run?
1: Fred, well, it was a successful visit on the whole. Uh, President Obama's uh, humility, his gracefulness, his intelligence, he's very articulate, uh, his ethnicity, of course, all that fit very well into the Cuban culture. Some of the very same reasons that Obama's often criticized in the U.S., Uh, made him very lovable and attractive uh, in Cuba. Uh, And on the whole, the White House, I think, was very happy with the visit at the time, as were most Cubans. Uh, Still, a triple because I thought President Obama, he could have done more people-to-people. He could have included more Cubans in his events. Now, there, partly the Cuban government purposely wanted to hem him in to lower the temperature of the visit. Uh, For example, for his major speech, he had to deliver it before a rather reduced crowd in a theater, uh, and the crowd was mostly people uh, provided by the Cuban Communist Party, their loyal members. Mm -hmm. Also, in retrospect, uh, President Obama may have overplayed his uh, exaltations of U.S.-style democracy. Of course, he needs to do some of that. Americans expect it. Uh, It goes over very well for his U.S. audience. Uh, But to the ear of Cuban government officials talking a lot about U.S.-style democracy, what they hear is Obama wants to throw us out of office. So whereas it was important for Obama to raise these issues of democracy and human rights, he could have done so in a way which would have been somewhat more aware of local sensibilities. Mm -hmm. Overall, he's fed a backlash on the island among, uh, among officialdom and you see a rather defensive, digging-your-heels attitude that's evolved in the, in the interim since, since his visit.
0: Well, the Cuban Communist Party just held its uh, once-every-five-year Congress, and it sounded like the regime uh, is intent on maintaining control. Um, is that uh, an example of this backlash that you talked about?
1: I think you could see a toughening attitude uh, at the Party Congress, which in part was a response uh, to the uh, visit of Obama both to his emphasis on democracy and to the way he was embraced, after all, by the Cuban people, which has to be seen as a challenge to the Cuban leadership.
0: Well, one of the uh, continued sticking points in the relationship is the U.S. sanctions on Cuba. I mean, I'm sure the Cuban people, at least, if not the regime, would would like sanctions to be lifted. But President Obama can't lift sanctions on his own. Uh, What can President Obama do in terms of lifting sanctions? And and what uh, has to happen for the U.S. Congress to legislate the lifting of sanctions?
1: Well, there's a big debate among lawyers, including within the administration, as to how much leeway the presidency has or the executive branch has with regard to lifting sanctions. Uh, President Obama said publicly that there's not that much more that he can do. But there are plenty of lawyers in the executive branch who would dispute the president's position. I think it's more of a political call in the end than a legal call. Uh, I I think what could happen is uh, if the Cubans really wanted the embargo to be lifted, Uh, the Cuban government, they could create a bigger constituency uh, in the United States uh, for uh, the lifting of sanctions.
0: Let's talk about the developments in the Cuban economy uh, for a few minutes. Uh, You've been an observer uh, of developments there for a long time. Uh, You have this new book coming out called Open for Business, Building the New Cuban Economy. Can you give us a quick preview of your book?
1: Sure. Happy to do that. Uh, My book looks at... um, the past, the present, and the future of Cuba. Uh, it looks at uh, the successes of the revolution, uh, but it also examines how the Cuban economy got so tied up in knots and such, so that it's today quite unproductive and not competitive internationally. I take a close look at what's going on today. You have an emerging private sector enterprise, uh, local businesses. I also look at some case studies of successful foreign investments. Uh, In tourism and mining and consumer products, international brands that are present on the island already, of course, not U.S. brands, but brands such as Unilever, Nestle, Malia Hotels, all doing well already on the island. And then I try to peer into the future, and I uh, have vignettes of a dozen inspiring millennials that I interviewed on the island. I look at their hopes, their aspirations, uh, their own expressions uh, for both themselves and for the future of Cuba.
0: Let's stick on that theme for a second, the millennials. Uh, so you, you've spoken with a lot of the, the younger generation in Cuba. How do you think they feel about thawing uh, U.S.-Cuba relations? I mean, they're, they weren't even alive when um, Fidel Castro uh, came to power in 1959.
1: Yes, I think the millennials generally have uh, respect for Fidel Castro and the revolution and what it accomplished uh, for their society. Uh, but for them that's also a history and they want to move on uh, they want to see uh, younger leadership they want a more relaxed political atmosphere uh, they want more opportunities economically uh, f- to exercise their own professions, to develop their own talents they want to be able to act and easily move about at the international level and they certainly want and expect fully normal relations with the United States and when they say normal that would mean to them that they could travel freely back and forth. Uh, If they wanted to take a job in the U.S., they could. If they wanted to return to Cuba, they could. If they wanted to have joint ventures, collaborations with uh, people in the United States or elsewhere, there wouldn't be any obstacles. Uh, That's what their view is of a normal relationship. Uh, And they both uh, hope that that will happen. And actually, uh, in the millennials that I've interviewed, they all expected that to be in their future in the medium run.
0: Thinking uh, back to the increased um, private sector growth in Cuba, uh, and a lot of foreign brands are coming in. Is there a fear amongst uh, Cuban people, kind of generally, of what's going to happen uh, when, let's say, uh, full economic relations are reestablished between the United States and Cuba? The the colossus of the North is going to send all of its brands to the island.
1: On the whole, Cubans look forward to a fully normal and open relationship with the United States. But sure, there are some concerns Uh, in the emerging private sector, still rather small-scale business. Yeah, they're worried that if there's a fully open uh, window to the United States, their companies could be swamped by the superior size and capital resources of larger U.S. companies. They similarly worry that Cuban-Americans From South Florida with their greater economic financial resources uh, could also uh, overwhelm them so uh, many of them actually favor a more gradual opening to the US then from the cultural point of view sure some Cubans worry that uh, McDonald's hamburgers will replace Cuban empanadas they worry that uh, whiskey will replace Cuban rum they worry that Hollywood blockbusters will crowd out uh, good Cuban uh, cinematic productions. Uh, Personally, I think the Cuban culture can compete with global culture, uh, but it will have to marshal resources, Uh, they'll have to be savvy in their marketing, and I think sometimes uh, Cuban uh, innovators and producers and and creative folks uh, will want to work in collaboration uh, with international partners that can bring more resources uh, and international marketing networks.
0: And are there worries about the impact of of increased economic development on the the Cuban environment? I mean, I I should say, I know this is uh, seen sometimes as culturally chauvinistic. Uh, Cuba has not much economic development the way we do, so their environment maybe is more pristine, and it's a place where a lot of um, people want to go to see this pristine environment. Uh, I mean, is that a concern that people have in Cuba?
1: No, the Cubans are definitely very aware of the value of preserving their environment, not only uh, for its own sake and its own beauty, uh, but because it's smart from an economic point of view. You don't want to uh, remove all the fish in the sea. You don't want to destroy coral reefs. You don't want to cut down the forest uh, because then you have nothing left to attract the tourists as well as to enjoy. So the idea of sustainable tourism and sustainable development is very much on the minds of many Cubans. Now, to be able to execute that successfully, to have really a smart regulatory regime, uh, that's one of the big challenges facing Cuba going forward.
0: Let's take a quick break here to find out what's happening in the U.S. presidential election with senior fellow John Hudak.
2: After those convincing wins in the New York primary, Clinton and Trump went on the next week to win a series of contests in Connecticut and Pennsylvania and other New England states, even further expanding their delegate lead. After the New England primary date on the 26th, it was clear that Clinton would move on to become the nominee. She is in a strong position, stronger than she has been throughout the campaign, and the delegate math for Bernie Sanders is effectively giving him a 0% chance of capturing the nomination. He'll likely still stay in the race. He'll likely talk about the issues that are important to him and try to force Clinton to talk about those issues. But the chance of Bernie Sanders becoming the Democratic nominee ended on April 26th. Trump's wins in some of those same states mean that he has a more convincing argument to bring to the convention in Cleveland to say that he has won many more delegates than Ted Cruz or John Kasich or anyone else, and that even if he falls short of the 1,237 delegates he needs to capture the nomination, the party should still give it to him. Whether the party is willing to give it to him remains to be seen, and will march on in the Republican primaries looking for each additional state to see how big or how small Donald Trump wins. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening on the 2016 campaign trail.
0: And now back to the interview with Richard feinberg Richard, one issue that you've studied uh, is the U.S. property claims in Cuba. Can you briefly describe what that issue is all about?
1: Sure. Uh, when the Cuban Revolution came to power in the early 60s, uh, U.S. businesses uh, were expropriated. Uh, the U.S. Uh, did an inventory of those businesses and concluded there were about uh, 6,000 uh, authorized property claims uh, valued at about two billion U.S. in 1960 Those are concentrated in terms of value. Uh, top the top 50 corporate claimants account for about 1.5 billion of that 2 billion Uh, I suggest there are ways to resolve this the US and Cuban government have started to sit down to talk about this that's a positive development Uh, I think a a solution would include allowing US corporations to re-enter the Cuban market uh, in return for uh, dropping their claims uh, and to be working with and partnering with Cuban state-owned enterprises for the That's on the corporate side. But most of the claims, about 5,000 out of the 6,000, are actually held by individuals who owned beach homes or had a little bit of stock in various companies. With about $200 million, it would, that would be sufficient to compensate those 5,000 small claimants. So there are solutions uh, that are financially feasible and that could actually benefit the Cuban economy. Uh, but both governments have to see this as a priority, as something worth getting done. I think from the Cuban point of view, they do want to get this uh, legacy issue off the table. Uh, They do want to improve relations with the U.S., with the U.S. business community. And then most importantly, they want to improve the investment climate because Cuba very badly needs fresh flows of international capital uh, to create good jobs, to make their economy more competitive. Formally speaking, the Cuban government recognizes that need for capital inflows, uh, but again, executing. Uh, doing what's necessary to attract those capital flows. Uh, That's the big challenge.
0: And uh, does Cuba have any counterclaims on the United States?
1: Yes, Cuba has uh, two types of counterclaims. Uh, One is uh, they say that we damaged their economy through uh, our uh, economic sanctions. There's no doubt that we did that that purposefully. Uh, However, I think that's a non-starter in terms of claims because the United States the use of economic sanctions is a major tool in our foreign policy arsenal and if we agreed to pay the Cubans for the damage done there would be a very long line of uh, countries that would then say how about our uh, damages Uh, there's another type of Cuban claim which I think might have a better shot uh, and that has to do with uh, Cubans who uh, lost their lives as a result of uh, US aggressive activity Uh, Sometimes CAA supported the Bay of Pigs, for example, uh, in the 1960s, primarily. Uh, That would be damage to persons, uh, and possibly that might be something uh, that uh, there could be creative solutions for. Uh, The U.S. uh, has accumulated lots of money, for example, uh, coming out of settlements uh, against uh, various banks, mostly European banks, uh, for their violation of sanctions. Uh, some of that money for example might be applied uh, to solving this issue of uh, Cuban claims with regard to uh, personal injuries so uh, there there are, a package could be put together uh, resolving those personal claims for damages against Cuban individuals and families uh, together with uh, resolution of outstanding uh, uh, certified US property claims
0: and, and how does the uh, issue of the US naval base at Guantanamo Bay factor into Uh, the current state and future state of U.S.-Cuba relations?
1: Well, the Cuban government has very, very uh, long-term said that they want uh, that naval base uh, evacuated by the United States. This goes back to the uh, early years uh, of the U.S. occupation in 1902. The base is vestigial from a U.S. military point of view. We just maintain a very small token Uh, military presence there now, Uh, but it has a certain symbolic uh, import both in the U.S. and in Cuba. Uh, I'm sure that eventually, uh, with normalization, that issue will be resolved, Uh, but uh, I think uh, it's not really uh, a front and center issue. Uh, Guantanamo is not located in Havana uh, where it's very visible and uh, a visible irritant. Uh, it's off in a remote area in the eastern part of the island, uh, so Cubans are only aware of it when the Cuban government harps on the issue. Uh, there could be some creative solutions. Uh, it might be turned into uh, Guantanamo, but it eventually be turned into a national park, uh, tourist attraction, uh, maybe uh, a free trade zone for the uh, assembly of light manufacturers to create jobs for Cubans. Uh, but that's not, none of that will be done in the near term. Uh, I see that uh, the solution of Guantanamo Bay as coming out of uh, one of the final steps in full-fledged normalization of relations between the U.S. and Cuba.
0: So looking ahead, what do you think uh, is uh, the endgame for Raul Castro and the Cuban regime in terms of U.S.-Cuba relations?
1: So in my forthcoming book, Open for Business, which will be out in June, uh, I lay out three scenarios uh, for for Cuba, Uh, good, bad, and ugly. I talk about uh, there are dangers of stagnation or even of decomposition, as has happened in some post-communist settings, but I focus primarily on a more optimistic scenario, my sunny scenario, in which Cuba evolves into a hybrid economy uh, with a more efficient, smart public sector still strong, uh, a private sector increasingly powerful, dynamic, although regulated uh, to to protect the public interest. And international investment inflows that makes Cuba much more competitive and better integrated into global supply chains. So this hybrid economy of a, of a more of a smarter, more efficient state economy, a dynamic domestic private sector, uh, and international investment uh, coming together uh, to lift income, provide hope, and most importantly, uh, keep uh, the millennials uh, in, at home uh, in Cuba.
0: So thinking. Uh on a personal note, if I wanted to go to Cuba now, could I go there? Is it, is it open for uh, American tourists to go? Are we allowed to go there? Uh,
1: so according to U.S. government regulations, you can't go there merely to enjoy yourself as a tourist. No. Uh, however, if you uh, have some purpose there, uh, if you go to do research, uh, if you're a journalist, if you go to investigate Cuban culture, religion, the the economy— Uh, If you have purposeful people-to-people meetings, uh, then you are allowed to go. Uh, And it's a self-reporting system. There's a a checklist of 12 categories. If you can fit yourself honestly under one of those 12 categories and check that box, uh, that's all you need to do uh, to go right now. So basically... uh, If you have some interest other than just lying on the beach, uh, yes, you could currently go to Cuba. Uh, There's such a rush of U.S. travelers to Cuba now that it can be difficult, during the high season anyway, to find yourself a hotel room uh, or to get flights. Uh, So the big challenge for the Cubans, actually, uh, is how to uh, meet this surge of demand from uh, increasing numbers uh, of American citizens very interested in visiting Cuba.
0: Now, I know that you were actually in Havana during President Obama's visit there in March, um, officially uh, doing doing your work, but when you are in Cuba and you're not working, what do you like to do? Uh,
1: so, I tell you, Fred, in my life in general, I don't like to make a sharp division between work and play. And in Cuba, uh, I find nothing more enjoyable than just talking to Cubans uh, from all walks of life, all ages, from all regions of the country. Cubans are very well educated. Uh, They are articulate. They're socially aware. Uh, They're uh, warm and friendly people on the whole. So I enjoy fascinating conversations uh, with many, many Cubans. Uh, Some of that ends up in my research and writing, as people can see if they read my book, uh, Open for Business, where I report on my meetings with uh, small-scale business, with people working in the international investment sector, uh, and with the millennials, uh, the people who will be the future of Cuba.
0: Well, I want to thank you, Richard, uh, for taking the time to be on the podcast today.
1: Well, thank you very much for the opportunity, Fred.
0: You can learn more about Richard Feinberg and his forthcoming book, Open for Business, on our website at brookings.edu. And now, let's meet Susan Hennessy, a fellow in our Governance Studies program and managing editor of the Lawfare blog.
3: I'm Susan Hennessy. I'm a fellow in national security and governance studies at Brookings. Uh, I'm actually from Washington, D.C. originally, um, but I moved to Sacramento, California when I was a small child. My path to sort of becoming a scholar at Brookings is a little bit untraditional. I worked as an attorney at the National Security Agency. Um, So from inside the government, I saw um, how important sort of informed, non-ideological perspectives were to public discussions of national security issues, um, particularly at a period of time in which a lot of information was uh, being leaked to the public. Um, And I saw that there was a lot more noise signal in the debate. Um, And so I was inspired to become a scholar in order to contribute some um, really needed research and perspective, um, and also because I wanted to be an example of how uh, much more transparency is possible in the national security community while still being responsible about safeguarding classified information. In my field of national security, I think the most important issues we're facing today aren't ISIS or Russia or nukes. All of these are difficult challenges, but they're managed risks. The biggest problem is ideological capture of these tremendously complex, nuanced, and difficult issues. Um, Right now as a nation, we're currently grappling with issues that really go to our core values security priorities, the role of technology in the law, the function of law enforcement, privacy, um, intelligence collection. Um, and everywhere we turn, there are people trying to convince us that it's really a matter of simple choice and really simple framing, right? So in the Apple FBI debate, it's really a question of being pro-encryption or pro-privacy um, or our, our response in Syria is really about non-interventionism versus adventurism, um, But it's never that simple. Um, So many choices in national security and foreign policy are really about either picking between two good things um, or having to decide which of two bad things to accept. And I really think we need to have more responsible voices in that discourse um, and to ensure that our future isn't determined by the loudest voice in the room. Right now, my day job at Brookings uh, is being the managing editor of the Lawfare blog, um, which discusses the legal dimensions of national security issues and current events. Um, my own broader policy research focuses on the policy and regulation of lawful access to communications, both by law enforcement and the intelligence community, uh, as well as the impacts of the executive branch structure on cybersecurity policy for government networks and critical infrastructure. So I'm currently reading To Save Everything, Click Here by Evgeny Morozov, um, which I would really highly recommend to anyone interested in technology policy. Um, he has a pretty uh, controversial perspective, but essentially he argues that we all know need to really reevaluate how we consider and debate the moral consequences of digital technology. And I think it's a really interesting sort of antidote to uh, the sort of disruptive, innovative buzz speak um, that pervades these issues. Um, and so whether or not you know, one actually agrees with the thesis or not, um, I think it's a really interesting call to be thoughtful um, and, and very challenging to a lot of kind of the orthodox perspectives on, on technology issues.
0: And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Kolzer, with editing help from Mark Holsher. Plus, thanks to Chris Anichi, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abbalah, and Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdelrahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. And if you haven't checked out our brand new podcast, I think you'll love it. It's called Intersections. Find it on iTunes and on our site at brookings.edu slash intersections. Until next time,
2: I'm Fred Dews.